And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. everybody welcome back to the podcast today i have a very unique episode because it's not really based on a conversation that i had with a guest and it's certainly not based on uh just creating a commentary about the creative life or what have you like like i've been doing this season this is actually rooted in an audio recording of a screening that i had on august 30th of 2022. Um, I had the 20th anniversary screening of a short film I made back in 2002. And I recorded the whole screening. I recorded the audience reaction. I recorded a little talk that we had after the screening. And I didn't, I don't know what, I didn't know what, what I wanted to do with it, but I thought this would be interesting to have and see if I can't create a podcast around it. And so what I did was I put all of the assets together, the video recording of the room, the audio recording of the room, and the reaction of the audience. And I've decided to have that as the basis for this episode where I'm going to play the film for you. You're going to hear the audience. And occasionally I'm going to talk over the film. And it's kind of like an audio commentary, but with a lot more added to it. Because with this particular project, the audience reaction is really important. You see, this film is the embodiment of sort of this philosophy that I've been curating for the past 20 years. And that's that filmmaking for me is much more rewarding personally when it's done as a collaborative effort on the part of a whole community. Like this movie would not exist if it wasn't for the efforts of the community I was living in at the time. A community I've not been able to duplicate since I moved to New York. And so... With that said, it was obvious that 20 years later, once I've restored the film, which I have, I would screen it again for that same community and see if it still holds up, see if they still react, see if it still works. And I feel like it does. It still works for this particular 
town that I grew up in. And so this is the 20th anniversary screening, and it includes an introduction that I gave. So at the screening, like when we start the movie, the movie doesn't start right away. It actually starts with me talking about the movie because uh, the, the screening was hosted by the Historical Society. And so I had to give historical context on why we made it, how we made it, what ended up being with this movie and all that, and why I ended up restoring it and the drive to show it 20 years later. And so it's very much a local program. If you're not interested in where I'm from or sort of the local vibe that got me into filmmaking and how I made films initially before moving to New York, maybe this episode won't be of interest, but I'm hoping you stick around because uh, this, <laughs> this is more me than I think any other episode I've had so far. Uh, this is very much the kind of thing I'm about. Just getting a bunch of random people together who wouldn't otherwise be making a movie, making a movie, and then keeping it alive over 20 years, rooted in that whole community collaboration thing. Uh, it's it's very, uh, a, it's, this is going to be a unique episode. I promise, though, that the next episode, we will be back to the normal format for this particular season. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you on the other end. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 20th anniversary screening of Hero for a Day. My name is Eric Norcross, and I have been asked to make this video introduction to tell you more about this project. One, why we made it, why are we screening it 20 years later, what was making it like, and basically, what is all this for? <laughs> so, 20 years ago this month, we premiered this movie on the island. We premiered it on the back deck of the spa restaurant. As you can see from this footage, we actually, it was a full-blown premiere. We had a screen, we had a projector, we had a sound system, we had free food. See, this is me with the crudités. And uh, the sign that we had out front telling everybody that we were having a screening. So this was a heavily promoted event on the island in August of 2002. And I knew at that moment that I was going to want to show it again. And for some reason, 20 years always stuck in my head. I'm like, 20 years later, we're going to show this movie again. I knew I wasn't going to be staying on the island much longer. And I didn't. I left the following year. But I knew that no matter how long I was gone, going to be gone, I would come back 20 years later and show this movie again. And so I'm going to talk to you about what production was like and why we started this production. I had just gotten back from a foundational film program in Vancouver, and I was aching to make a movie. Anybody who has an arts brain and is pursuing the art life knows what it's like to ache to create. And, and as a, for a filmmaker, I just, I really wanted to make a movie. And I wanted to make one on the island with Islanders. Because there's a spirit to community filmmaking that I knew could really make this production memorable and meaningful. Eric, how do you like the movie business? Well, the only magic in it is that it can make your money disappear like that. And it was a wonderful experience. My chief collaborator, Brandon Geister, 
uh, is the perfect collaborator a person could have. And I've never been able to find anyone like him in all my years living in New York. Condensation. It's been so hot under this thing. The wood is sweating. And come to think of it, the feeling I had, the vibe I had while making Hero for a Day, I've never been able to duplicate it. Not in a professional setting and not in any of my other independent films that I've done on my own accord since then. So this movie is very special for a lot of reasons. The collaborators, the setting, and just the time in my life when it was produced. With that said, it's a very silly movie. We had more fun making it than I had anticipated going into it. And you know what they say in the industry is, if you have a lot of fun making a movie, the movie's not gonna turn out the way you think it's going to turn out. But at least you had fun doing it. And that's definitely the case with this movie because it, I was after a serious action movie. And what we got was uh, a silly homemade action movie, but one with a lot of professional touches. So our main influences at the time were movies like The Rock and Armageddon. And we ended up making Threat Level Midnight well before The Office even went to air. So this is our Threat Level Midnight, only it's ours, so it's way more important than Threat Level Midnight. And we, we shot it on mini-DV. So it's, this was before the proliferation of high-definition technology. Uh, and it was on a camera slightly more advanced than this, but this is, this is pretty close to what we shot it on. And for the chase scene, we actually had three cameras going. We had the main mini-DV camera, and then we had two uh, analog 8mm video cameras. So, all old formats, now completely obsolete, but one of the earliest digital independent films to be produced. This is the size of the tapes that we initially shot on. So again, it's all obsolete by this point. And that summer, I made, I think, 150 VHS copies. And this is one of the last ones that still remain. So we were like handing, this, handing these copies out like candy. I honestly don't know how many copies are still left. We were giving them to everyone. And in my collection, and I take archival, the archival of video very seriously, I only have one. Like, the, I have obviously the mini DV digital masters, which have since been rescued, and I have this master, which has also been digitally rescued. What happened was, we, we made the movie, we had a great time, we were, we were experimenting with visual effects, we had made a green screen using a piece of plywood we had taken off of the old barracks, <laughs> and, we were just messing around and, and goofing off while also taking it very seriously. Like we were constructing a story in the medium, medium of cinema which hadn't been done on the island before. And that's pretty cool. In 2009, Brandon came to visit me in New York for a couple of weeks and we re-edited the movie using a completely different score, a completely different color grade, and we were just experimenting to see, well, what else can we do with this footage? Like what kind of vibe can we get from it. And I actually learned a lot during the process. And although my intent was to make the final version of the movie then, that just wasn't going to be the case. 
The final version of the movie is the movie you're about to see. I'm not touching it again after this. At least, I don't plan to. Unless some new footage is rediscovered that I absolutely have to integrate, which I'm pretty sure isn't going to happen. This new version was actually started a couple of years ago, prior to the pandemic. I knew the 20th anniversary screening was coming up, and I said to myself, I am going to re-digitize, re-import all the raw materials that I have. And for the most part, I have most of the raw materials. I think there was only one tape missing. Uh, and that's pretty good for like an, a movie like this, where it had no budget, no archival budget, or anything like that, to have only one tape of missing footage. That's, that, those are some good numbers right there. And so, prior to the pandemic, I started re-editing this movie from scratch and reorganizing it, taking what I learned from the first version that we premiered at the SPAR and what I learned from re-editing it in 2009, and I merged the two versions together in sort of a master 20th anniversary edition. And I actually finished editing it during the pandemic, so it actually took a few years to do. One of the interesting and unforeseen things that occurred while uh, I was working on this new edition was I no longer really cared about the movie or the story we were trying to tell as much as I cared about the raw footage itself. Because something weird happens 20 years after you make a movie. You realize that you, your friends, your family, your collaborators, everybody you were working with in that era are suddenly more interesting in raw form than they are when they're putting on performances. Don't try not to squint. Oh, just try not to squint at the fusion lit light. When I'm digitizing these tapes, I have to watch them in full. You can't just do it quickly. It's not like transferring files. You play the tape back in real time and the computer records it. So I'm watching this footage and I'm enamored with all of us. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. We're so young and beautiful. Look at the way I talk. You listen to the way I talk. Listen to the way Sean talks. Listen to the way Brandon talks. This is so beautiful and amazing. And I, I can't tell you how many times I watched those raw tapes again and again and again. And it occurred to me that this final version of the movie should reflect what I think is important now. And that's, of course, archiving and making available who we were and how we were in 2002. She's on the couch, so no, I got one out. You got the So while I did reconstruct the movie using raw materials and I built it out a little bit more, um, and I fixed the sound design. I, I finished some of the visual effects I never got to finish before. I also wanted to integrate a lot of the footage that I found particularly fascinating. And for the most part, they were the outtakes. And so if you sit through the end credits, I have included some of the best outtakes that I could find. And now this movie is whole. Before it wasn't whole, before we had very questionable visual effects and some incomplete visual effects and some effects we didn't even 
try to do, even though we wanted to. And on the second version of it, we still didn't try to do them because technology and talent hadn't quite caught up. But on this version of the movie, all the visual effects I had initially wanted to do, they're finally done. Thanks to Fiverr making talent available across international borders. I actually had people from all over the world contributing to the post-production of this movie. The sound design and sound mix is now as professionally done as it can possibly be. I had it professionally mixed in the United Kingdom, which is interesting. I had a professional poster finally made. Everything I wanted to do in 2002, but couldn't do, I've finally been able to do with this movie. Everything I learned in 2009 that I wanted to retain has also been integrated into this movie. So it's not only those two movies that have been melded together with the best of the things that I've done, but it's enhanced by the inclusion of the outtakes, the raw footage, and sort of the feeling of, I don't want to say nostalgia, but just, I, we're going to use nostalgia as a placeholder. There's a feeling that one gets when they realize, well, the important thing was who we were and how we interacted, how we communicated, and the fact that we were able to get this all together. I'm still blown away by it. And as I said before, I've not been able to duplicate this experience. And because of that, this film matters more than probably anything I've created since. And I've created a lot since, with a lot more resources. So that says a lot about the importance of community collaboration when it comes to projects like this. Art matters, community matters, and before we move on, I just wanted to thank you for attending this screening. By attending this screening, you're not only supporting the film or me as a filmmaker, but you're supporting the efforts of everyone involved because it takes a lot to say, yes, I will help you make this movie. Yes, I want to be involved in your art project. You know, when, when somebody has nothing to gain and they're willing to step forward and do it anyway, it's, it's so incredibly uh, inspiring. So thank you, and thank you to everybody who worked on this movie back in 2002. And here is the 20th anniversary screening of the 20th anniversary restoration of Hero for a Day, which I was plotting to do 20 years ago. I'm just kidding, everybody. Except for Sean, I was serious. You really need to put a shirt on, boy, because you ain't all that in a bag of chips. So that was Julie Geistert at the very end there. Just a piece of home video footage that she shot while documenting the making of the film. So what happened was we always had this 8mm camcorder laying around in case we wanted to use use it for like as a second camera or some extra extraneous shot that we couldn't for some other reason get with the main mini dv camera and so julie whenever she was around would just pick it up and film and she filmed a lot like she didn't only document the the making of the film she also was just having fun with it and just doing her own thing and i don't know if she 100 percent understood that the footage wasn't going to be a part of the movie but 
in that instant she was talking to Sean. Well, there was no guarantee that Sean would ever see that footage because it was my camera and my tape. So, but there's a lot of that. And one of the interesting things about this project is 2002 was the year of filmmaking on Long Island, Maine. Like, this was the year that not only did we make this movie, but Brandon was getting into filmmaking and videography, and he had he had done a fall scenic for his video class, which was the same class I had taken when I was in high school. And his fall scenic got got to air on the CBS affiliate in Portland, Maine. Like, they aired his, his video. Uh, and we had also done a sort of action sketch short film uh, called The Long Island Project, not to be confused with my film from 2006. I'm going to make a plea to the government to have computer power removed from the silos forever. Come on, guys, what are you up to? And so we were making all kinds of short videos, fun movies, and the thing about Brandon's Long Island Project, though, it was genuinely rooted in exploring direct director styles. So uh, towards the latter half of the video, like we would cut the film and say, this film is now directed by George Lucas. And then it would be in the style of like Star Wars. Or then it'd cut, this film is now directed by Steven Spielberg. And suddenly it's in black and white and looks like Schindler's List. And we also did a Michael Bay version. And meanwhile we're also telling a narrative story and it's all the same actors all the same locations it's just a little bit more goofy and and if you think that this isn't goofy like of course you know this is goofy think about this level of goofiness but way elevated to like a thousand percent like that's how goofy some of these other videos we were making were and so hero for a day was sort of a project that was part of all that and all that was a part of this project yet this was also meant to be a standalone calling card for me i knew i wasn't as i said in the intro i wasn't going to be on the island much longer and i wanted a calling card that had been filmed there because it is a very unique place that is going to be very difficult to replicate and i haven't replicated it since and i was able to come to new york with this short film And with this short film, I was able to cobble together my first collaborators for what eventually became my Long Island project, which was about Long Island, New York, seceding from the state of New York, a tongue-in-cheek political satire (laughs) that I'll admit wasn't particularly well-made, but it was my first New York movie, and it it wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for this movie, Hero for a Day. And so... That's, that's sort of the environment that we were in in 2002. We were all just making videos and short films. And when summer came around, the summer of 02, Brandon and I became the primary staffers in the kitchen at the Spar restaurant. The Spar was the only restaurant on the island. Now they're in like, I think there are, it's still only one, but it's not the same one. It's, it's called the Bakehouse or something, but the Spar was like the main restaurant on the island. And I ran the grill and the fryer, and Brandon was the dishwasher, and every day coming into work, I would have the camcorder on me just in case I needed it for anything. There was always interesting stuff going on on the street. There was interesting stuff going on out on the harbor, on the bay, and I would just record. I would take random video. One day, Julie 
says, can I use your camera? Danielle and I want to make a movie. Danielle was her friend. And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, can you come back tomorrow, though? Uh, and I'll give you, like, your own tape. Because I have other footage on this tape. And she's like, oh, okay. And so I put a fresh tape in the next day, and I brought it with me. And I'm like, I'm, I was sure she wasn't going to come back for it, but she actually came back for the camera. And her and Danielle went around the island shooting their own little movie. And I still have that raw footage, too. And I don't think their little short film would ex would have existed if we hadn't made this movie, if we hadn't said, hey, you can actually make a movie on this island with these cameras. You could do this. Uh, and so that footage still exists. It's in raw archival format. It was never actually edited into anything. Uh, but uh, it does exist. And um, it's part of this whole huge archive of just raw footage surrounding this movie. So much footage from O2 that's part of this movie. I mean, the uh, 4th of July parade from July 2002 on Long Island, Maine. I documented it with, with the camera, and I wouldn't have done that had we not made this movie. Like, everything about making this movie turned me into a guy who had to have a camera on him at all times. And, of course, we all have cameras on our persons at all times now because every cell phone comes with a really amazing video camera attached to it but this was before that this was when it was alien concept to be making movies on long island maine on casco bay maine and it was very special and one of the interesting things that brandon and i had talked about prior to the pandemic when i went up there to uh, sort of revisit the idea of collaborating is uh we talked about how special it felt because we were the only ones that were doing it. It was before the proliferation of high-definition technology. It was before filmmaking really became accessible to anybody who wanted it. We had thought outside the box to do it, and we were doing it. And because of that, it was special. Very special. And he's like, I just don't feel like it's special anymore, which is why I haven't pursued it. Anybody who wants to do it can do it and a lot of people are doing it and I'm like you know what that's true but it isn't always about being the only ones that are doing it it's about who you're doing it with and the experiences you're having and this is something I alluded to in the introduction right what matters most is the people you're with and the experiences and what you've learned from the process I'm still learning a lot from this movie I mean I learned more from restoring it than I did from making it and I learned a lot for making this movie. So it's just, it's much more than just being the only people in town doing it. Who are you doing it with and what exactly are you doing? What are you learning from the process? That's what it's really about. Getting together with people where you wouldn't otherwise get together with them or at least get, maybe you would, but you wouldn't get together with them in this capacity. I mean, a lot of the people in this, yeah, they'd, we, you know, might watch movies together, play video games together, or what have you. But without this initial push to, I want to make a movie, I don't think anybody would think to come together to collaborate on a, create, a creative sort of endeavor this complex. So, that's where it becomes big. Uh, because it's just... And, and you know what? We have all of this footage to remind us of what it was like. When I was digitizing or recapturing all of this raw footage, uh, 
for the restoration and the overall archive, I'd forgotten what it was like to make this movie. I had forgotten. Uh, do you hear my New York sirens in the background? That is so annoying. I'm pretty much done with New York, guys, spiritually. I'm just, I'm like checked out of this place. I think the pandemic did me in. I'm like, you know what? I'm kind of ready to leave. But anyway, with that said, where was I? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's just like I'd forgotten what each day was like, how we talked, how we interacted with one another. And so what this project was really about was all this footage from 2002, you know, documenting the parade, uh, Julie and Danielle's short film that they made on one of the tapes, all of the various footage from the spa restaurant, all of the various behind-the-scenes footage of us making it, all the raw footage that wasn't used that was meant to be part of the movie. All of that is like this ship on the harbor, right? This is my, my allegory for it or my metaphor for it. It's, it's the ship on the harbor. And to keep that ship anchored, the film is the anchor. By keep, keeping the film restored and properly archived, it brings with it all this raw footage. This film doesn't go anywhere that that raw footage doesn't always go. So whenever I dump this movie to uh, a G drive to back it up somewhere, all that raw footage goes with it. All those raw assets go with it. It is the anchor that keeps all of this historic footage from 20 years ago intact. That's how I look at it, and um, that's how I keep the film relevant, and its importance to me personally uh, is in, in that. Hero for a Day isn't just a goofy movie that a bunch of kids made. It's the anchor for an entire era of footage that wouldn't otherwise exist. And so, I know I'm over-romanticizing it, but that's truly how I feel. One of the interesting things about this movie is that it segues a lot from the original cut where we attempted to use fighter jets as the primary weapon to quarantine the island. The effects were done with models and they were against green screen and they were really like just not well done. I mean, we weren't using the best equipment. We didn't have a lot of time to play around and experiment because it was on school equipment. It was on high school school equipment. And so there was a lot of time in, in you could Brandon could only do them in between his actual class projects. And so one of the uh, things I, I opted for in 2009, which I chose to keep for this version of the movie, was just use helicopter footage. We had a lot of helicopter footage, and I even shot more helicopter footage just for this 20th anniversary restoration. So I actually got a mini DV camera. I got a blank tape, that's, and I had some charge and a battery. And I basically went out onto New York Harbor, and I shot just random helicopters on mini DV. So that big sort of military helicopter that you see lifting off from the back, that was lifting off from the downtown heliport. And uh, I filmed that basically in downtown Manhattan. A lot of the um, close-up shots of the Coast Guard boats were also on New York Harbor. Um, there's a shot of a white helicopter that Sean sees through the window, and you can see like the branches of the trees in the foreground. And I'm tracking the white helicopter behind the trees. 
that shot was actually done in 2004. My, the first year I was living in New York, I was walking around Long Island City with a mini DV handycam, very cheap one, not, not, not as good as the one we shot this movie on. And I was down by the Queensboro Bridge. And I saw this helicopter flying over real low, and I was like, I tracked it. And then I just put it in the archives. And I didn't use it for anything until we restored the movie in 2009. And, I, and I'm like, this would be great. Because there are no leaves on the tree, it matches the time of year we shot Hero for a Day. So when Sean looks out the window, in the original cut, we don't show what he sees. We just hear it. What, what we heard was fighter jets. So I said, what if he hears the helicopter, looks up, and then we show this shot that I did in 2004 of that helicopter. And so that's still the same shot in this version of the movie, which makes a lot of sense because why change it? It's a perfectly decent shot. And so really now the quarantine is just a bunch of boats and helicopters kind of swarming the island. Although you don't really see anybody on the streets at all. Of course, that's a no-budget movie. Why would you? But... uh, I don't, th- I don't think back then I thought about it as a quarantine. I think the word quarantine really came from the 2009 recut. It was really just, I think probably back in 02, I was like, and then this guy sends some people to the island and they look for the tape. Like, that's just kind of how I thought about it. I didn't think about it as quarantine until 09. And it's so interesting, though, that now with the 20th century version of it, which was primarily finished during the pandemic, the word quarantine has a whole new meaning for all of us. Uh, it conjures up different emotions now. And so I just find that interesting. Like quarantine to me sounded like a really cool, badass action movie word to use in 09. And now it's just turns the stomach because we were all in quarantine for like several years because of COVID-19. So this footage of John Burke kind of going through photos, fucking around, like anytime you see him fucking around the uh, cabin here, that wasn't, that wasn't originally for Hero for a Day. That was for another movie we were going to make in 2003. So in 03, right before I was scheduled to leave and move to New York City, I wanted to make a movie called Moral Authority. Which was, it was kind of different. It was sort of like the Long Island, what the Long Island Project would have been, uh, where this island in the middle of nowhere is trying to secede from the state, and a bunch of like secret agents are dispatched to like wreak havoc on the island. And so this is a guy who's running the secession movement, who's being stalked by someone. And I'm like, you know what, we could just like, I really like this footage. I don't want to waste it because like, it's just beautiful mini DV footage to me. And I could probably make it work into the narrative of Hero for a Day in some form or another because he is also in Hero for a Day in some obvious dialogue driven scenes. So why don't I have my character dispatch somebody to stalk him? So we're like, oh, well, this guy's staying on the island. Let's get him to. And look, that's me in the distance. And the way we shot it was John Burke was shooting me and then I would shoot him because we didn't have a crew. So we were just shooting each other. I'm like, oh, we'll put it, put it together in editing and that's exactly what we did. But yeah, all the, all the extraneous footage was from moral authority. 
and also uh, there's some other footage from Moral Authority, which I'll point out later. The sound of the alarm that you hear reverberating throughout the island, that's an actual uh, fire siren that you hear. Uh, I don't know if they still do it, but every Sunday at like noon, you would hear these air raid sirens be tested and it would reverberate throughout the whole island. And uh, I always thought it was a really great sound and I guess I had captured it with one of the cameras at one point. Because when I was ripping all the footage, I found this, this like this blank moment on the tape where the camera was pointed at the sky and all you could hear was this siren. And I'd realized that, oh, I was probably just documenting the sound of the siren in case I wanted it later. And so for the 20th anniversary restoration, I took the cleanest part of that recording and I looped it. And so that's why you hear this siren. It's very much a part of the island community, and I'm so happy to have it in this particular movie just because it kind of makes it a little more whole in terms of documenting what, what it was like living on the island. Um, and it's not the only time like the sounds of the island will come through in the sound mix. After the shootout coming up, you'll hear a bell buoy. And that bell buoy is an exact recording of the bell buoy that's positioned right off of Ponce's Landing in Casco Bay. So anybody on the island who's coming down Garfield Avenue, for example, or Garfield Street, I don't know if it's a street or an, a- or an avenue, but if they're coming down Garfield, eventually they'll hear that buoy. You'll hear the bell. And what, one of the interesting uh, corrections I made to the sound mixer was he had mixed it out because the raw recording is obviously from a mini DV camera. So the raw recording isn't exactly clean. And so he's just like, you know what, I'll just like mix it out. And I actually had to send him a correction. And I said, if I don't hear that bell buoy, the movie's not done. I need to hear the bell buoy that I always heard when I was down front. Down front is what we call the area with the pier and the spa restaurant. And so uh, he mixed it back in for me, even though uh, his instinct was to leave it out. Uh, But again, it's all about documenting the sounds and the scenery of the island. Which is why I also have a shot when I'm driving of... It's it's this point of view through the, um, the windshield of this building, this derelict building. That building doesn't exist anymore. So I'm like, you know what? This footage wasn't in the other two versions of the movie. I can fit it in here and have some sort of documentation of that building because that building was always really cool. It was really fun to film around there. Uh, And you can't film there again because they ripped the building down. So I just like, I plugged that shot in just for the hell of it. Why not? It's what's important now is just keeping together this documentation. Oh, this is where we uh, we were using three cameras to shoot this. And so you can tell by the quality of the camera which one was digital, which one was analog. So all these like super close up and artsy shots, the zoom shots, those were all like analog 8mm camcorders, Sony camcorders. And here comes is the deputy from the island back in the day. I don't know if he still is, but uh, he was kind enough to volunteer himself for a couple of hours that day, which is big because there was a football game happening that Sunday, and uh, 
he made it very clear that he was taking a break from the football game to help me out with this. And I said, well, you're, I thank you even more now. <laughs> and we made sure to wrap up as quick as possible so he could get back to the game. <laughs> anyway, that's how I'll always remember that we shot the chase scene on a Sunday was because Brad took a break from the football game to help us out. <laughs> and uh, The first two versions of the movie, you never saw the muzzle flash and you never saw the ricochets. And for this one... Uh, I ended up using Fiverr to find somebody to help me add those effects. And actually, what's really interesting is these effects were is how I met uh, the guy who ended up sound mixing the final movie and helping me sort of flush out the sound design because he was also a musician and a sound mixer. And uh, yeah, he was the guy that uh, that's where you can hear the bell bowie. But um, he was the guy that I was talking about, the Balboa sound, the same guy. So this is the first version of the movie where you actually have to get to have those muzzle flashes and the uh, ricochets. And I was so excited about it that I actually duplicated the shot and extended out the shooting of it. So before, I only shot, like in the first two versions of it, I only shoot a few times and then he drives away. But because I had three cameras going and I could loop some of the shots... I was able to extend the shooting. So I'm really, as he's backing up, I'm still firing at him. And then as he's turning away, I'm still firing at him. And, and the way I did it was using the, that extra footage from the 8mm cameras, but also duplicating the shot of me firing, which I can do because we can just change the muzzle flash slightly and voila, it's a different shot. And uh, it, it makes it a lot funnier. I remember when I saw the first cut of it, I was in hysterical laughter. I'm like, this is even funnier than it was before, just because it's so overkill and excessive. <laughs> um, if you if you notice, like some of the shots, there are um, there's like these weird filters over them, and you can kind of see the scuffed filters. So we didn't color. We didn't really have good color grading technology uh, back then, or at least it wasn't accessible to us. And so to get tinted footage, I actually took these leaf filters and put them right over the lens. And they worked most of the time, but if we were shooting in a place like down front where it has a lot of air off the harbor, a lot of salty air, it got scuffed up really quick and easily, but you didn't always see it through the LCD monitors. Because the LCD monitors did a really great job at um, just not showing you reality. And um, so it's only in seeing the footage digitized where we're able to be like, oh my God, you've got this stuff on the lens. Well, it wasn't on the lens. It was on the leaf filters that we were using to, to tint our footage. The... Uh, the other thing about the LCD filters, the, or the LCD screens on the cameras too, is it always made the footage look so good, look too good. So whenever we watched the footage back on like a tube television, uh, it never, it, it's, it, there was no justice in the world, right? It's just like, oh my God, it just looks like home video footage. This doesn't look good at all. Why did it look so good in the camera? Well, because the LCD screens were really bright, really colorful, really crisp. There was a lot of great contrast, and they were really small. So even small video looks good. It's cinematic. And one of the things I did with the restoration is I wanted as much as possible, and to a certain extent, I guess it's a fool's errand, but I achieved it in some areas. 
I wanted it as much as possible to treat the footage in a way where it could come off the way I felt when I looked at it on the LCD screens. That was my measurement for this. All, all this footage, by the way, that's very well exposed, unlike most of the other movie. This was for Moral Authority. Moral Authority is when I finally started figuring out how to use a DV camera and like exposing everything correctly, which is why all of this footage actually looks way better than the rest of the movie. This is the Moral Authority footage. So this is Sean, again, as a character from a different movie. <laughs> um, but it works. In the 2009 version, he actually looks in and he sees John Burke's dead body. But in this, I, I decide not to show what he sees. I decided to go straight into the montage because it didn't matter. Um, this version of the movie was supposed to set up a sequel. And so we would learn what was in there in the sequel. Of course, the sequel didn't happen because of the pandemic. Um, this particular footage of the dead bodies being found, this was actually from the original cut of the movie. I don't actually have raw footage of this anymore. This was the missing tape. There's one missing tape uh, that I really regret because I had a lot of great footage that wasn't ever used. Um, all these dead bodies were from that missing tape. Consider going the other way on this, Jack. I forgot my line. A move to take the computer power out altogether. I know, I'm in the direction. Can you see it? No. Alright. I'm gonna step in the frame. Ready? Zoom in and get sort of... I'm going to mail them to every news place in town. Even the Washington, D.C. Post. Like... Three, two, one, shift again. Round one.
You know what Sean did in town? Oh, he walked up to a window and he goes, Ugh. and he looked at his six pack at a, at a window in town, a car window. Oh, son of a guy. Oh, hell, you're not going to be able to use those military. Oh, shit. Keep going. Oh, hell, you're never going to. You'll never be able to use those skill sets. <laughs> Screw you. Yeah, I saw your anal retentive ass killing that guy. <laughs> Have you seen what's on this tape? Yeah, I saw what was on the tape. <laughs> We're doing it! <laughs> All right, and... All right. Have you seen what's on this tape? Yeah, I saw what was on the tape. <laughs> Have you seen what's on this tape? Hold on, I haven't hit action yet. Do I have to say anal retentive? Oh, okay. Do I have to say anal retentive? Okay. Eric, what are you feeling about right now? <laughs> I feel like a fucking ass. Dude! One smile. Should we stand here and look back and forth? Yeah. Stop! I don't know what to say. Up, up. This is natural. Yes, I've located the tape. Do yes. your
think, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that, uh, I think that came together pretty good for a 20 year old movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, trying to, uh, I was finishing the same course that he had taken, Eric Rothbard, the Foreign Arts and Technology. He had finished his year in film school, and I was trying to multitask <clears throat> um, projects in the, in the, in the um, what do you call it, the uh, uh, editing suite. Oh, Media 100. Yeah, basically using old, um, very um, uh, uh, earlier version of a nonlinear, basically digital editing platform, um, which at the time was very, very rudimentary. And uh, but I, and I was trying to finish up the time digital effects, which you saw some of in the pre uh, uh, pre production from there at the beginning. Uh, so it turned out okay. But I, we we spent a good afternoon, for one thing, preparing. Just that green screen, which got used a few times off of Norton's property, piece of old plywood we found, and just slapped a bunch of green paint on it. Um, and then we spent an entire other afternoon, which we actually painted up at the uh, uh, original uh, community center, which is now which is the, the police station. Um, and then we spent another afternoon trying to get these toy jets to look bright uh, against the wood. And as you can see, he shows the best examples I think that were available. And they still didn't quite look right. Uh, okay, Jets fly straight, usually not uh, not 45 degrees off, off center. So, uh, but, it, but it was a it was a heck of a time. And uh, you remember at one point I actually had, I was supposed to be there for I think one of John the very first or I'm sorry the second John Bernstein in the police station. I was coming from town and I was terribly sick. I couldn't be there, so I actually missed uh, part of the setup to that. But, Still, at the end of the day, despite how long everything ended up taking and going over, I think the time limit that we had set, uh, because of obviously people trying to make time and make things work, and, uh, and then people working, um, I, I think it, it, I, I, we were very happy when we finally came to the original premiere. And I'm grateful that we could do this 20 years later. Honestly, I, uh, I, had, uh, I feel really bad. Eric and I had part, uh, teamed up or sort of got together two years ago, right, right before COVID. Literally, I think it was a two month weeks. before. Two weeks before New York lockdown. Before lockdown. And he had no idea that it was going to be this bad. And uh, we talked, he had talked about that he was doing this for the 20th. And uh, I, was, I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. Uh, my only, um, my only uh, hope that tonight is that more of the cast members could have, could have attended. But I know timing constraints and everything. But I'm very grateful for all of you for showing up. I think it's pretty wonderful. And Eric did get a copy of the uh, of the response to this, so that was nice as well. So I can do that again. <laughs> but thank you all very much for coming. Anybody have any questions or anything? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Is this going to be put up online, or is there any way to access it to the greater world? <laughs> yeah, I have a YouTube channel where you can see this. Um, and I'm going to be creating a playlist of all my archival video, dating as far back as when I started doing video here. So I'll email the Historical Society when that's available. Anything else? Anybody else? Well, thank you all very much for coming tonight. <coughs>
So there you have it. You got to watch live with me the 20th anniversary screening of my 20-year-old movie, Hero for a Day. And one of, the th one of the big surprises of this particular event was that my collaborator, Brandon, who I've always perceived as being rather shy, uh, he really took the helm at the end and did the Q&A and all that. And I really appreciated that because I was not prepared to do that. I wasn't going to do it. Uh, by this point, I don't really know a lot of people in that town. Uh, there's like when I took the ferry back to the island, I didn't recognize anybody. Like I didn't know who anyone was. And on the island, I think I only recognized a handful of people. There were some people who recognized me. There were people who I recognized who didn't recognize me at all. And so I'm really glad that he stepped forward and, and hosted that Q&A. I didn't ask him to do it. He just did it on his own accord, and I really appreciated it. So thank you, Brandon, for doing that. And thank you, everybody who showed up uh, to this screening. Uh, and, of course, to the Long Island Historical Society for helping me arrange the screening and ultimately hosting the screening. I wouldn't have been able to do anything on that island if these people had said no thanks. <laughs> Because I don't really know anybody there anymore. So uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it inspirational to do your own big project, maybe your big community project. And uh, I'll see you on the next episode when we return to our regular formatted structure. I don't know if it's going to be a commentary episode or an interview episode because I don't know where this episode is falling in on the grand scheme of our release schedule. But Whatever it is, it'll be a normal episode for this season. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.